Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone and welcome to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. Now, food is our way to maintaining sustenance that we need in our bodies. When it comes to parenting, we're our child's first view into a positive relationship with food. Our guest today focuses on the biological basis of behavior, with her current research emphasizing the process of food decision-making. Please welcome Leanne Chafee. How are you going today? Hi, thank you for having me. It's so good to have you on. Like We are looking a whole lot into how to have a positive relationship with food, how to look at it in positive light, and also how we can help our kids look at it in a positive light as well. Now, as a professional on the show today, what is your role in helping people understand how our brain and emotions connect with food? Oh, thank you so much for asking. I am a professor, and so most of my role in helping people understand our relationship with food and eating is helping my students. Uh, I work at the University of Washington Tacoma, which is a a really interdisciplinary university, and it's the urban-serving satellite of the University of Washington system in Washington State in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. Um, I'm an interdisciplinary scholar. I studied behavioral neuroscience, and I study the psychology of eating more now, and uh, basically principles and concepts and attitudes that inform our food choice. The psychology of eating is a relatively like new discipline or area of psychology, really pioneered in the 1980s. Uh, one of the first researchers to talk about the psychology of eating was a cultural psychologist named Paul Rosen. And if we think about what this field has blossomed into today, it's you know the relationship between psychological processes, including those that are more individual in nature, like emotions as well as the context and social interactions and community and culture that inform our relationship with food. So beyond food choice, it includes, you know, eating behavior and reward because eating is fundamentally a goal-directed behavior. And you've written a book about, a book called A Guide to the Psychology of Eating. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the questions that sort of popped up and that I sort of saw when reading a little bit more about it is, does our stomach or our brain tell us when it's time to eat? And I always wanted to know the answer to that question. I feel like it's a question that we just don't, we don't ask ourselves quite often and we don't say, are we actually hungry? Are we just like so used to the timing of, of everything? So I'm so excited to be able to talk about that a whole lot more throughout the show. Um, So what would you see as the most common frustration some parents and some people face when trying to pursue that interaction of having a good relationship with food? I think the most common frustration is the contrast between the story we're told about how we're supposed to parent and feed kids and then how it actually works in reality. Mm -hmm. Um, 
because of the highly interconnected world that we live in and the proliferation of sort of wellness and health messages on social media, many parents get, uh, you know, told that they're, they have to do things in certain ways in order for their child to be healthy. And then you have a kid and they do what they want to do. You know, tod- toddlers especially are, uh, are, are pretty, pretty tricky. Um, I thought about, you know, burying this a little bit, but I have a two and a half year old and for a week this summer, all she wanted to eat was popsicles. Right. And so I have every tool and knowledge at my disposal, but she is still a toddler. And I try to look broader at how her food averages, you know, over a week or over a month, rather than letting a single moment or a single meal or even a single day get me down and worried about her long-term development. Mm-hmm. Now, that's such a great introduction to our show today. And thank you for sharing some of the personal experience that you've had as well. Um, before we discuss it even further, I would love to get to know some of your recommendations and some of your passions by playing our channel's favorite icebreaker. Now, to start off with, what is the most recent book that you have read? Uh, I just read Taste Like War by Grace Chow. It's a food memoir that has a lot of really cool cultural psychology evidence in it. Um, Mm -hmm. Grace Chow grew up near uh, where I teach, just south of Tacoma. Oh, wow. So what's what's the basis of the book? Is it looking into the similar to what we're talking about today or is it something completely different it's it's really different it's uh this you know really cool memoir of her experience growing up um in the south puget sound area south of olympia washington um as a korean american and as one of the Mm -hmm. only um non-white individuals in the town where she was raised it talks a lot about her mother's relationship with food and about her family's mental health and how Mm -hmm. stress and food and mental health and culture are all really linked at different points in her lifespan. Wow, that you never see it, sort of see it as a wide range of how food is sort of helps not only our entire body but our entire emotions as well. It's it's a, that's an amazing read actually. Now, what is the most what is the movie that you would recommend to our viewers today? Oh, since I have a two and a half year old. The thing that she's watched lately that I actually enjoyed was Ratatouille. Hmm. Okay. Um, it's great food messages in that one. Um, yeah. Sorry, not much time for movies. No, Ratatouille is a Disney classic and you can never go wrong. You can never go wrong with Ratatouille. <laughs> now, could you name a podcast that really stands out to you in our conversation today? Yeah. Uh, Virginia Soul Smith is a journalist who has published a few books about our cultural relationship with diets and fat bias. Um, she has a podcast and a blog called Burnt Toast, and I highly recommend that. Um, okay. And then also Maintenance Phase with Aubrey Gordon. Okay. Well, it's amazing that you can name them straight offhand. That yes. is, I cannot, I can either remember a title of a podcast or the yeah. person of the podcast. Never both. So, that's that's pretty cool. Now, who is a person that you find yourself looking up to? I mean, beyond the wonderful women in my family that I look up to, um, a role model that I share with my students quite a bit is Nora Volkow. 
Um, she is currently has an appointment in the National Institute of Health, but she's a neuroscientist that studies reward and drug abuse and just the way that our brain processes reward. Wow, that that's a pretty big, pretty big role model to have. <laughs> now, during your academic pursuits, what's been one course that has really stuck to you to this day? When I was in graduate school, I took a seminar in psychopharmacology. So it's basically a drugs in the brain class um, with the late Dr. Constance Smith. And she was brilliant and very tough. And in this class, it gave me this uh, really strong blueprint really for how I teach today and how I teach courses around neuroscience and critical thinking and just you know being a good scientist. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's that's a that's not a light class to take, but that sounds, it sounds really fascinating though. Now, talking on the parenting show today, I know that everyone has a very different definition of what parenting is and how to parent. What, what, how would you define parenting and what being a parent is? This is a really hard question. Uh, <laughs> I'm a relatively new parent. So uh, to me, so much of parenting is caregiving. And caregiving comes from places obviously beyond, you know, the immediate family or biological parents, um, but more this sort of community perspective on how we all contribute to the development of people as they grow. Mm -hmm. And what would be, as a new parent yourself, what would be your message or parents that need to be aware of during that transition into parenthood? Oh, this is also hard. Um, to me, it was really remarkable how priorities changed and how I started to understand more that parenting and caregiving and raising children is this sort of invisible yet essential social responsibility and the way that different societies uh, structure their supports around that responsibility different has been very apparent to me. I didn't realize how personal that conversation around the social responsibility of caregiving would be to me as I became a little family. No, I, I get that question. I get that answer quite a lot when sort of looking into the, um, the amount of support that's sort of around you and priorities change is a big one that I get quite often. So definitely not alone in that. And I think a lot of people have realized that throughout their transition to parenthood and it's it's, it's a really interesting part to be able to talk about, especially when looking into the um, what people now see as fun and joy was not something that they would see prior to having a child. So like you say, Ratatouille is now the movie that is playing around in your house, whereas it wouldn't have been years ago, it wouldn't have been before that. So it's, it's a really interesting sort of dynamic that changes. Now, Going into what we're talking about today, how would you define what it means to have a positive relationship with food? I've been thinking about this today, getting ready for our conversation. I think I'm going to have a bit of a long answer here. Uh, there's this anthropologist, Sydney Mintz, I believe, that compared the way we think about food to the way we think about music. So someone who doesn't know much about music can still have really strong opinions and preferences around the type of music they like or the uh, way that they interpret lyrics, for instance. Others, you know, might be open to all kinds of sounds. 
Similarly, we all have a lot of thoughts about food, even if we don't have as much background in cooking or understanding nutrition or the psychology of it. Um, these thoughts are pretty well formed. We have some solid attitudes and these um, can vary drastically between people, even within a culture or family. So if you're listening, you might already have a pretty strong idea of what it means to have a positive relationship with food. If I think of this from an academic perspective, you know, there's two different ways to, to think about this. Historically, psychology and medicine have sometimes defined health as the absence of illness. So a positive relationship with food would sort of mean the absence of any sort of disease or disorder related to eating. But to me, this is a very insufficient explanation. I would rather think about a positive relationship with food as one that doesn't dichotomize foods into being good or bad or healthy or unhealthy, because we know that life is a lot better if we eat and enjoy food. And all food doesn't equally, like equally or sufficiently fuel our body and our mind for our other activities and interests. So to have a positive relationship with food means that we can navigate sort of the complexities of the contemporary food environment. We can encourage kids to make decisions for themselves around food eventually as it becomes developmentally appropriate. And then we can also challenge assumptions or pressures that we face around eating that we know influence us over time. <laughs> And how is it that we've become, I think a lot of us, we've become so strict when it comes to food and knowing, okay, we know what's, like you say, we know what's good, we know what's bad. And then how are we able to even decide which is good and which is bad food? And when it comes to having that, we say that we want a good relationship with food. We want to be healthy. We want to, um, we want, but we still want to enjoy food and there's still the availability to enjoy food. How is it that our brain is sort of just really telling us this is good, this is bad, when we're not really putting in that, um, that knowledge to be able to really know what's good and what's bad? Yeah, I, to me, this is really complex because in part, our brain likes to simplify things into categories. We are prone to using like heuristics or mental shortcuts that simplify mm -hmm. a complex phenomenon into a dichotomy. While that makes it more efficient to think about that complex phenomenon, like our diet, it leads us to kind of a, a narrower perspective or perhaps some errors in thinking or judgment. On the other hand, we all are exposed to a, a great deal of information about food but we don't all have the capacity to navigate the more epidemiological evidence that's complex and a little bit different than sort of how we're taught um, what it means to eat healthy. There's no such thing as like a single healthy diet. Everyone has different needs and preferences for their lifestyle. And so m many of the messages that we absorb around foods being good or bad or that we should or shouldn't eat certain things come from people trying to sell products. And so when mm. we're looking to examine our attitudes, we might wonder not just what we think, but why we think it and where it came from. And if a lot of the messaging was from someone trying to sell you something, then perhaps their interest isn't your well-being, their interest is making money. Mm -hmm. And when looking into having, establishing that positive relationship, 
Why is it so crucial for us to have that perspective and have that knowledge at a young age? Yeah. So food is so important beyond providing nutrients, right? It's connection and we use it in celebration. It communicates things about our culture. And so it's developmentally important beyond nutrition and growth. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we're designed to survive all kinds of food environments, right? For most of our history, we lived in in times of food scarcity or even straight up famine. Uh, this means there's not one defined way for how we should eat or interact with food. So when mm-hmm. parents are told that they have to do it a certain way or else their kid won't be healthy or their kid isn't going to grow up to have a positive relationship with food, I think that's just patently false and it, it sets parents up to feel bad about what they're doing. So here, if we wanted to establish a positive relationship from food early, we'd want to have a lot of respect for all this beautiful diversity of diet and of people and preferences. But each kid is really unique. You know, even siblings can be very different and development's uneven, right? If as soon as you get used to something, a child changes. And I say this to provide a contrast to the perfectionism, right? These, this idea that we have to do things a certain way, um, for instance, how to feed our kids. So in some ways, a kid's positive relationship with food starts with their parent or caregiver examining their own relationship with food. Mm -hmm. One of the problems is the research in this area comes from a really narrow perspective of, you know, Western academia. The psychology of eating has historically been studied in populations that are not representative of the whole world. And we use this acronym WEIRD to describe research that's conducted In the psychology of eating, most of the research is in the US, Canada, Western Europe, and in Australia. And so you can think about what's unique about these countries. And this acronym WEIRD applies to these nations, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic nations. So there's this sort of this asterisk on all the research. It's like, if you study privileged people in these environments, these findings hold true. But we don't know outside of these this narrow perspective how true all of these findings are Mm -hmm. so i think especially when it comes to when you're saying we were saying an early age and having that positive relationship what kind of role do parents play in influencing their child's relationship with food and and especially during the early years that we are sort of raising them and teaching them Yeah, absolutely. Right. Because we feed them. So, um, you know, biologically, this this starts in utero. The, you know, flavors that a mother consumes, a child is more likely to prefer after they are born. Uh, Exposure matters quite a bit. There's a a lot of researchers in this area. Like uh, one example um, is named Leanne Birch. I always remember her because we share the name Leanne. She showed that more exposures are necessary than you would think. So there's a, you know several different studies where the researcher is trying to get the toddler to eat a new vegetable. And we know <laughs> that we have to be exposed to something. You know, kids have to be exposed to something in order to eat it. But they found it took like 10 exposures to increase the chance the kid would eat it on its own. And in each of those exposures, the kid has to take a taste of the food. And to oh. me, this is more, as a parent, I hope if you've seen something a few times, you're starting to come around to it. I don't think 10 times, right? 
And then we think about this in practice. If you have a toddler that's rejecting a specific food item or showing caution towards it, you're not going to make them sit there and take 10 bites because a toddler's not going to do that. So you think about this happening over time and increasing preferences or changing preferences through exposure takes a lot of time. So one contribution parents have is this, you know, patience and sort of slow exposure. We also know that parental modeling, you know, matters dearly. Kids are far more likely to try a food that they see their parent eating than if they see a stranger eat it or someone that they're close to eat it. Um, so, so it matters that you show that too, right? Mm-hmm. A new perspective um, that I also thought of in thinking about this question is the idea of responsive feeding. It's recommended quite often by pediatricians or other individuals that have a more clinical or medical focus than I do. But the researchers that came up with the idea of responsive feeding thought about it as how we build a relationship. So rather okay. than about control, it's about trust. Um, the idea is that you want the kid to eventually be able to self-regulate, but in order to get there, because the parent or caregiver provides food, they build trust because the caregiver recognizes when the child's hungry, they provide this nice environment and they provide food. The foods are developmentally appropriate, for instance, in portion size, and then the parents are positive and kind with like their verbalizations or their praise as the kid eats. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of trust being built when being the person that's feeding the child, being the person that, um, so it sort of helps in that relationship with not only the parent, but with how the food that they would get as well, basically. Okay. No, that's, that's really interesting. Cause like, I think I've never really spoken about how the, the connection between a child and food also helps with the connection between a parent and a child as well. Yeah, so no. that's a that's a very interesting sort of connection that's going on. It's sort of building that whole relationship. I think it's like I don't have children myself, but I I can only I only have cats in my house at the moment. So I sort of would connect that with how like I would feed a stray cat and things like that. If you're constantly feeding them, they'll constantly build the trust between you and them. So not that I'm comparing cats to children, but it's no. still. Yeah. Well, I do think, you know, you're trying to nourish something that can't communicate back to you very well. Right. Yeah. And so there is, if you can be patient with an animal that can't communicate back, that's a framework for being able to, you know, build a relationship with a child that eventually will be able to communicate back, but maybe can't <laughs> right now. No, that's, I've never really seen that as a possible perspective. So that's, that's a really, it's one thing I've learned today. So that's going to be an interesting highlight to sort of talk about in a lot of future discussions that I have with a lot of my friends. Um, now going into another, the next question is how can parents really introduce a whole variety of different foods and flavors to their children to encourage a diverse and healthy eating habit? So In order to answer this question, we have to think a little bit about how we're hardwired to eat from birth. So Mm -hmm. uh, we're sort of set up for success and failure, depending on how you look at it, right? Um, First, we have the strong preference for sweet. It's the strongest taste preference from the time we're born so that kids eat milk. As a kid transitions then from milk to solid foods, they're still going to have a very high preference for sweet. 
Toddlers actually require a lot of calories each day, so it makes sense that they eat and enjoy fruit, eat a ton of fruit. Like fruit budget with kid did not expect how many berries we were going to eat. It provides a lot of, you know, carbohydrates converted to glucose, energy currency of the body. I like to think of this as like a wisdom of the body. Like we're born craving sweet, so we eat milk, and then our ancestors that were wandering around would eat a lot of fruit. The second sort of hardwired preference is rejection of bitter. Also present from birth, it's really important as childhood as kids get mobile because bitter taste communicates the presence of a toxin potentially in nature. If you were trying something new and it was bitter, there's a chance it's not good for you. Um, However, this means it's really hard to convince kids to try green veggies that are bitter in nature, like Brussels sprouts and broccoli and cabbage, all from the same family. Mm-hmm. And then this third, you know, hardwired wisdom is neophobia. Broadly speaking, fear of new things. Food neophobia is when a kid doesn't want to eat unfamiliar or unrecognizable foods. So one, you know, kind of misconception is about the developmental trajectory of neophobia. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of guidelines for when you're supposed to start giving kids solid foods. And that's actually not when their neophobia is highest. So, you know, it's usually around six months of age if you meet these certain criteria. Initially, a lot of kids will be pretty accepting of different things. And then parents are like, yeah, wow, my kid likes all these foods. This is great. It's going to be smooth sailing. And then neophobia increases over time, right? We expect kids, for instance, to have more stranger danger when they're two or three than they do when they're six months old. And so while a kid may initially accept some new foods, then picky or cautious eating sort of creeps up. And that can peak in toddlerhood or some kids even in early school years is when they, you know, kind of peak in how cautious they are around foods. And to me, that's the the misconception is how long and persistent that picky or cautious eating can be. So there's a lot that you have to really introduce them pretty quickly into not just what they would taste, but also what they would see as well. Like a lot, a lot of, um, a lot of the times I'm talking with a lot of my friends who have really young kids at the moment, they're all like, they only want to eat what I eat. They only, when they see me eating something like a sweet potato or boiled potato or anything like that looks a really odd color, they only taste it when I'm eating it but they'll want the piece that I'm eating. So there's always that like, they're always mimicking you, but it has to be exactly what you eat, which is very interesting because it's it's something that I'm not sure whether it's a common thing or whether it's a, it's just, it's just them. Yeah, I mean, it kept them safe historically, right? If they did Mm -hmm. what their parent was doing, then they could be pretty sure that that wasn't going to harm them. Okay. So it's pretty so common. Yes. Okay, good. Okay. It was, that's, it's really interesting. And I did want to ask when it comes to food and food habits as well, are there some food habits that are a little bit more genetic rather than just learnt from the parent? Yeah, absolutely. So first, those hardwired experiences, because they're present across humans, we expect <laughs> that preference for sweet rejection of bitter and food neophobia, you know, having this curvilinear relationship are hereditable. And 
It's really hard, obviously, to tease apart the role of genes and experience when we think about something like eating because it's happening in the context of a home environment. Uh, but from my perspective and my training, I'd argue that many of our preferences and habits are hereditable. There's pretty clear examples in taste sensitivity and olfactory sensitivity. So some of our food preferences come from the genes that we have for taste receptors on our tongue and then the genes we have for olfactory receptors. One of the most you know, common examples is cilantro. Some people perceive cilantro to taste like fresh and bright and herby, and other people say it tastes like dirt or soap. And this is likely from an olfactory um, gene difference. You know, So there's different yeah. hereditable alleles. And we can see pretty significant cultural differences in the preferences for cilantro across groups. And of course, that ties to the cuisine that's linked to that culture. Um, mm -hmm. One of the ways we think about taste sensitivity of the tongue is just like the density or the, you know, the sensitivity of it. And some people are even more sensitive to bitter than average. And so if in your family, there's a lot of people that are very sensitive to bitter, it's likely that you are as well. There's at least two genes that explain taste sensitivity. So if you know you don't like broccoli or kale or red wine or black coffee, that could be genetic in nature. Okay. So it's kind of like um, spice as well. Spice is probably a big indicator that, because I know that my sister can handle spice from birth. But me, a um, little background, as I'm part Asian, part Australian. So there is that both sort of genetic part in me that my sister yeah. can handle spice. I, for the life of me, still cannot. So is that a huge part of how genetic would work as well? Yeah, absolutely. Spice perception is actually pain receptors on the tongue. And okay. so, yeah, the experience of spicy food is activating, yeah, like temperature and burning sort of sensations through uh, pain signaling. Okay. There's certainly, obviously, a global distribution of spicy food that can we expect to in part be related to genes. It's also, spicing food is really protective. Um, a lot of the combinations of spices that are used, especially in groups that are close to the equator, prevent uh, food spoilage. They have like antimicrobial properties. So in areas that historically had hotter climates and less refrigeration, it kept food safe longer, which is really cool. No, that is that is really cool. It's amazing how we figured things out and how people sort of figured things out back in those days where we didn't have a little availability like you do now. Now, we're looking in some of the misconceptions now and sort of debunking some of the things that you hear quite often in your line of work. So what are some mis myths or misconceptions that parents should be aware of when it comes to fostering that positive relationship with food, especially in an early childhood perspective? You know, in some ways, I feel like I've talked about the things that I can think of in this regard already. So all kids like sweet, right? If your kid has a sweet tooth, that means they're a normal kid. There's probably a pretty strong ceiling effect there. So it's not something that the parent did, right? Like no matter what the kid's going to like sweet. Um, all kids reject bitter, at least at first. Um, there's ways to prepare things that are bitter to increase acceptance, but some kids still perceive them as really bitter. We also expect all kids to show picky or cautious eating at certain points, though there's a lot of variability, right? Um, <laughs> 
and development's uneven. So rather than expecting that there would just be, you know, an increase in the variety of a diet over time, we expect there to be a step forward, a step back, or two steps back, a step forward. And that's just normal. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I guess the one thing I would like to add here is it can be really essential here to take a step back and think of like a social justice perspective on misconceptions and the positive relationship with food. We know that probably more important than individual, you know, parent-child eating um, habits is access to healthy and safe food. Uh, Irregular access to food or food insecurity and poverty all have far more adverse outcomes associated with them than any sort of specific pattern of eating. Um, So a positive relationship with food has food security as sort of an element of it. And Mm -hmm. I think that's something that's often overlooked when we focus on individual behaviors rather than larger like social structures that influence our relationship with food. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now we're looking into some of the strategies that parents can sort of adopt that you have either professional or personal experiences with. Now, how can parents address common food-related issues such as food allergies, um, intolerances, or even dietary restrictions in a way that is both positive and supportive for the child-parent relationship? So there's a lot of perspectives on this. Uh, I do think uh, it's important to note here that because I'm a researcher, I'm not a developmentalist and I'm not a clinician or nutritionist. So I try to be really careful not to provide advice about how or what we should eat. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more awareness today around allergies, intolerances, and restrictions. Uh, Food allergies, to me, are sort of in a different category than the others. Food allergies here, and we could include like lactose intolerance because it's an allergy to lactose, are really real and really different than suspected sensitivities. I've also published a lot on pseudoscience related to food. And to me, this is one place that pseudoscience related to food can come up to parents. We could define pseudoscience as something that looks sciencey and tries to trick us, but um, is vague and doesn't rely on actual empirical evidence. It typically is deliberately misleading us to buy something. We've seen as awareness of food allergies has increased, so has the sort of corner of the wellness industry where there's at-home food sensitivity test available to purchase, and many of them are empirical. This industry is estimated to be like in the billions of dollars this year, right? And so unfortunately, there's a lot of pseudoscience around um, food sensitivities that encourage us to buy products. when it comes to food allergies, though, you know, on the other hand, I think that many countries have sort of an academy of pediatrics, like the American Academy of Pediatrics, has very clear step-by-step guidance on whether or not exposure therapy is warranted and how to approach it in order to better understand whether or not it's an allergy that can be overcome or if it's something that has to be coped with. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of parents, they have that. I think a lot of nowadays they have the um, allergy test as well to sort of see exactly what your child is allergic to and sort of ways that you can avoid that and sort of help as well. So I think um, my personal experience and going with a lot of my friends and things, that seems like one of the best ways to 
for parents to be aware at least of at least what their child is allergic to. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, moving on to something, sharing some tips as well. Do you have any tips that you could in, sort of tell us in incorporating nutritious food into a child's diet while also still allowing for the occasional treat and indulgences that, like you said, they, they have a sweet tooth and things like that. So how would you sort of balance both the healthy eating and allowing them to sort of have the autonomy to choose? Yeah, Um to me, the best approach that I've found, as far as being supported by research and as a person who feeds a toddler every day, is called the division of responsibility method. It was developed by um, a researcher whose last name was Satter, or maybe a clinician whose last name was Satter, like 30 years ago. And the phrase that summarizes the division of responsibility method is the parent decide, parent provides and the kid decides. So it's the parent's job to provide food and the kid's job to decide how much they eat. And so here, part of the model is building trust. So you trust yourself to provide the food that's required for the child. And you have to trust the uh, toddler to do their job and eat what they're comfortable with. This is really different from other models or recommendations and that the goal is not to get the kids to eat the vegetables, for instance. It frequently means that kids might skip a meal um, or ask for something different. Um, And they might have to have another meal, for instance, after dinner before bed. And that's very normal and appropriate. Mm -hmm. So we know that we want our child to have that sense of autonomy to decide what they want for themselves. But what are some tips that we can incorporate some nutritious foods into their diet while also allowing for those occasional treats and indulgences that we know that the kids love? Uh, One method I found works really well in my house, but also is pretty supported by research is called the division of responsibility. And in that method, uh, the phrase is parent provides, child decides. So the idea is that a parent provides a meal, but then doesn't and eats with the child, but doesn't pressure the kid to eat or say you have to finish your plate. The kid gets to decide how much of that meal they eat. Obviously, you would want to provide some foods that you know your kid likes, but maybe you would include some new foods or ones that they don't like as well. The goal of this model is to build trust. The kid provides the parent to put the meal down and the parent trusts the kid to do their job and eat, you know, eventually learning to eat when they're hungry and to eat a variety of foods. One way that this is really different from other models is the goal here isn't to get a kid to finish the plate or to eat their veggies. This frequently means that after a meal, maybe after dinner and before bed, there might be a snack or a bedtime snack, but that's normal and developmentally appropriate. A lot of kids have to have a snack after dinner before bedtime, and it helps them sleep through the night too. Um, Another important tip that I think is that parents need to remember, and this applies to things beyond feeding, is called the detrimental effect of reward. So we know from a lot of research on motivation that extrinsic rewards undermine intrinsic motivation. So if you want a child to be intrinsically motivated to eat their vegetables, you can't then offer them dessert as a reward. 
because that will decrease the amount that they like their vegetables. Um, and this is hard, right? Like many of us grew up that way. So it's really hard to stop yourself from doing that. Yep. But yeah, um, if we want our kid to be intrinsically motivated to do something, we don't want to give them a cookie to do it. And then third, we talked about the importance of modeling, right? And you said you've observed this in your friend's kids. Um, we want to model the relationship with food that we want our kids to adopt. Evidence shows that the similarities between how a caregiver and a child eat increase over time. So if right now, if like a child is young, it doesn't feel like they're modeling your behavior, that's something that tends to get better over time. Kids are more likely to try a food if they see their parent or caregiver eating it as compared to a stranger. But then they're also likely to model caregiver dietary restraint, um, and that increases risk for eating disorders later in life. So those are sort of the three model what you want your kids to do, division of responsibility, and don't reward kids with dessert. Yeah, the don't reward kids with any like cookies and things is probably one of the biggest ones that I see and that I think I've experienced as a kid as well. Like that's something that you oh you behaved okay you can go get a lolly throughout the grocery store and go pick which one you want and we can take that home and that's your reward for not screaming crying at the grocery store yeah so well let me add sort of an asterisk here so um i think the detrimental effect of reward is hard to completely avoid you have to be choosy with it right and so if it's like a really hard day and the market or grocery store is really crowded then that might be a time just to cave and like give the treat because that's not, to me, that's not the most important thing. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to not um, messing up, you know, sort of the balance of how they perceive different foods, that's a place where I'll, I'll want to avoid rewarding one food with another. That being said, because I practice division of responsibility and I love desserts, I don't really like restrict desserts that much. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if she sees me eating a cookie and asks for a cookie, I give it to her or, you know, someone else. Yeah. 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 No, I think like I, I will say that as I get older now and I have my own money, I have adult money now that I spend on random, random things. But I do spend on um, groceries and then when I go through groceries, I end up buying myself a little treat almost every single time. So I that. I like to assume that that's probably because I grew up with that idea of, okay, I behaved in the grocery store. I was good in the grocery store. I'm going to go buy myself a little treat. And that's just become a little known habit to a point where I can no longer shop by myself in the store without someone else sort of acknowledging the fact that I will get something for myself. So I always like to sort of see that as probably one of the results of that experience of facing yeah. that as a kid. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So now we're looking into some of the resources that you could possibly share. And I know we spoke about some of the support systems a little bit earlier, but do you have any that you could sort of list out that are available for parents who want to learn a bit more about fostering that positive relationship with food in, in their children? Absolutely. Uh, so some of these I mentioned, like you said, you know, your pediatrician or family doctor. Pediatricians and family doctors tend to be really pragmatic and offer realistic advice. They don't tend to, you know, share like what the social media tells you about having to be perfect. And so to me, that can be a nice place to uh, 
ground or, uh, you know, manage expectations. Second, I recommended the Burnt Toast podcast with Virginia Soul Smith. She also has two books and a blog. And a lot of what I learned about how I think about my relationship with food and in relationship to my daughter was, you know, stimulated by her and resources she recommended. So she's a great resource. And another resource I learned about from her is on Instagram with a handle, I had to write this down, yummy toddler food is her friend, Amy um, Palangine, I think is how you say her last name. And she's also a cookbook author. And the way she writes cookbooks is really practical. It could be useful for someone who's just learning how to cook, maybe that didn't know how before or wants to feed their friends in a way that, you know, they know they have some friends that are picky eaters or have, you know, different um, eating related concerns. Uh, yeah. And I recommended her, uh, her work as well. Okay. Well, that's good too, for us to list down and for us to note um, down below as well, a little for a lot of our audience who are trying to find some cookbooks that are really easy, really simple, really uh, save time saver as well. I know I'm definitely running out the door half the time of the day. So there's no point in me coming home and having to cook something that's huge and takes a lot of time. So that's probably a really good cookbook for me to look into as well. Now, finally, I would love to know some of your advice that you would give to new parents or parents of young children who are just sort of starting that journey of fostering a positive relationship with food within their family? Yeah. So I guess one of the things that surprised me and was really evident around eating was how as soon as you got used to a stage that the kid was in, it changes, right? So it's like, oh, I have this figured out and then everything changes. So just patience around that because you're constantly learning too. And you know, the other thing that I think about related to food and when I teach, I talk with students about this a lot is there's many things to worry about, right? You can worry about food and social justice or, you know, food and the carbon footprint related to it, right? And like environment or about specific, um, you know, nutritional concerns, but you, you can't worry about everything. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of options for what to worry about. And I think this applies to parents as well. You have to... Uh, be careful with perfectionism because that's going to harm your quality of life. Rather, it can be useful to prioritize just a few things or sometimes just one thing and to let go of others. I was really hopeful that we would all, once I had a child, eat the same meal, that I would make one meal and, you know, something appropriate, but we would just have one meal. And that's just not what we're doing. And that was something I had to let go of. But I do care that we're eating together. And so I prioritized eating together rather than that she would eat everything that I eat and that that just is great when it happens. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, it's a very realistic sort of approach to that. A lot, not a lot of parents outside of like practicing it themselves would know. So I'm so grateful for you to be able to list some of the some of the lessons that you've learned along the way as well. So um I hope that that's a lot of advice for our viewers. And I know that that's definitely something that I'm passing along. I'm always passing things along to a lot of my friends on the show. So it's nice to be able to have other things for me to sort of hand down to them. Um, now we're going to look into some of the practice and habits part of our show, which is, I think it's honestly my favorite part of the show because I get to see some of your 
practices. Now, what is a practice that you do to stay in the present moment? Yeah, so um, different researchers call this different things, but when I'm experiencing something positive, I try to purposefully note the details that are pleasant. And I think this comes out of the broaden and build perspective of emotion. The idea that when we experience positive emotions, it broadens our attention. And then if we pay more attention to the details, then it really strengthens the memory of that positive emotion. So if I was to go to a cafe with my husband and my daughter, I would be like, oh, this is a nice experience. And then if I'm being present, I might say like, oh, I'm really happy that even though it's the end of summer here, we're still having nice weather and sitting outside. Or, um, you know, my, my toddler said this funny thing and I'm going to pay attention to the details of it and try to remember it. And I, I find that really improves my mood over time if I pay attention to those details and I can think about those happy times if I'm stressed out uh, during the work week. Mm-hmm. And after speaking about some of the positives that sort of come about, what are some of the challenges that you do find when going through this practice of trying to stay in the moment? Yeah, you know, one challenge is making time for positive experiences and not always being worried about your to-do list and getting things done. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another challenge is, you know, when you're out with other people, like your partner, child, or friends, is really noting the details of the experience rather than, you know, sort of the commotion and being out with a group, for instance. Mm-hmm. So is there, do you set up a certain time for it? Is it, or is it sort of just like whenever you feel like you want to remember this moment, that's when you really focus in on it? That's a good question. We try to do family dinner uh, on days that we can during the week, but I, I'm more likely to do this when we go out together to do something, whether it's dinner or going to a park or, and we reserve Friday afternoons for that. And so it tends to be once a week at least, if not some other times, if I remember. Okay. No, that's that sounds like a great um, way to incorporate something that you really love into an everyday life rather than just sort of um, having it scattered along. So it's a little bit more focused in on, okay, I'll have this to look forward to as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, how do you find that this practice has really impacted your parenting as well as your perception in in how life really goes? Oh, that's a good question. You know, in some ways, it's impacted by how my parents parented me. My parents were both school teachers. And so Friday, they were happy and relieved. It was the end of the week. And we usually would have um, kind of a family dinner together unless we had activities. And so it's it's sort of how I see the, how the end of the week should go. And being able to do that with my own family feels very rewarding. Um, so like you said before, it certainly gives me something to look forward to at the end of the week because I typically schedule this for Friday. And so having that is a really nice you know, sliver between the busyness of day-to-day life. It also gives me some nostalgia and you know, nostalgia around food is a big part of food emotions. Because when I was a child, my parents were both school teachers. And so Friday afternoons or evenings, they were both happy and giddy that it was the end of the week. And we typically had some sort of special meal together like pizza. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, it's always something to look forward to. I think it's very similar to my household on a Friday night. It was always like, okay, we know we have game night or we know we have movie night or once a month we'd have going to out, going out for dinner or ordering out, like something that was very always specific to start off the fact that the weekends here and the weekdays are done and school's done for the week. So it's always like a big tradition. Absolutely. Now, we're going into the open mic of our show today, and this allows you to share something that you're passionate about, um, that you also may want to share with our audience and have a little conversation. So in the last minute or two, I'd love to give you the floor for a little bit and just share um, a topic that you that you have in mind for today. Yeah. So I was thinking a little bit about this question, and I guess... Um, one thing that comes up for me a lot, and I notice when I talk to students or when I talk to my friends, is that we're really exposed to ideas about diet culture quite frequently. You know, the average person knows a lot about food, but tends to exhibit some elements of nutritionism, and me included. Nutritionism is the belief that the quality of food is made up by its component parts, so like the ingredients, if it you know, has some health food in it or macronutrients or micronutrients that comprise the food. Many of these nutritionism type beliefs come from diet culture. And I think diet culture is a really bad thing. Diets are ineffective. They have negative consequences for our mental health and our physical health and our body image. So when we think about a, you know, a positive relationship with food and when I think about by research, I think about the ways that diet culture emerges in our life, where my um, student research assistants and you know our participants are exposed to diet culture, and how that shapes our relationship and the choices we make around food. Mm -hmm. No, that's a really interesting perspective and a really interesting take on how we maintain that positive relationship and also how it impacts our sort of our everyday basis and our everyday understanding as to how sort of taking out between the joy of food and also what we need to survive, basically. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a great way to sort of sum up um, today's show and to sort of sum up a lot of what we've been talking about today um, in the perspective of parenting as well. I think it's been, it's been really interesting to sort of talk about this a little bit more and I think get the research take on food and positive food relationships because I think we hear a lot about nutrition and what we can do, but to see the impact that it has on on our own mind and on our own viewpoint is is very interesting. It's why we it's so great to have you on the show today and sort of speak about that a little bit more. Um, if there is a way that audiences would like to get in contact with you to either discuss things further or maybe ask questions that I have probably missed when it comes to talking about a positive relationship, is there a way that they are able to get in contact with you? Yeah, I think my university email address is the easiest way to reach me. Um, and so I can provide it here and perhaps we can put it in notes as well, but it's L-C-H-A-S-S-E-E at uw.edu. Okay, perfect. I will have that down in the show notes below for easy access for a lot of our audience. Um, so thank you so much, Leanne, for joining me on the show today. 
Yes, thank you for having me. It was so fun. I I really hope that we do hear a lot more about a lot of more discussion about positive food relationships, especially when it comes to how we can sort of incorporate that into our child's lives. Because I think we sort of put ourselves on the short end of the straw, not being able to really define it ourselves, which is something that I find is important. So yeah, I hope that this show has, this episode has really helped a lot of people in sort of discovering what their relationship with food is and deciding for themselves whether it is positive or whether it can be a little bit more positive. So thank you guys so much for listening. I will see you all in the next episode that we have. You've been listening to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights podcast, produced by the Parenting Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 life management perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it so that we can grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at pa.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent. Thanks for tuning in.